KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I'm telling you, it was a lot of fun just being on that team. Then when Doc came, we were that first team in the NBA like they are now, you know, with, with people showing up before the games, watching our layup line, to throw it off the backboard one side, catch it, throw it down on the other. It was fun because you would go into a city and half the crowd's rooting for you. And our guest this week, former 76er Steve Mix. Sir, thanks so much for taking the time. Matt, no problem. Glad to be on your show. So you are down in Florida these days. Uh, what's life like, uh, not just in retirement, but in the midst of uh, the pandemic we got going on here? <laughs> well, it's probably a little easier down here than it is up there. But, you know, with the weather being as it is, uh, today we're sitting here in the you know, low 80s, mid 80s. Um, as, as, I, as I look at my retirement, even with the pandemic, things haven't changed a whole lot. I still get to play golf. I still get to swim in, in the uh, in the swimming pool. I still get to uh, uh, you know ride my bike down on the beach and stuff like that. And, and uh, so those three things have, have remained a constant, uh, no matter what which month it was. And the only difference is uh, you know early on for the first three or four months you couldn't you couldn't go to church, um, no movies. And the hard thing down here, I'm not so sure up there, was getting paper products. So we were, you know, people were elbowing each other out of way for a roll of toilet paper down here. <laughs> no, we had a lot of that up here as well. Uh, so in retirement, I mean, you're, you're a basketball lifer. Do you still watch a lot of hoops? Um, you know what I do? They, they ended up, the county down here, Indian River, ended up... Uh, building a $20 million uh, athletic facility about five years ago. They finished it up when we first moved down here. And I was doing some camps for them, uh, some little clinics, 20, 25 kids. Um, and I'm still doing some of those uh, maybe three, four times a year. Um, the interesting thing is uh, I'll probably be a volunteer at one of the high schools this year. Uh, and I'm not sure which team they want me to go on, but uh, help the help the head coach out a little bit. And the other thing that's been a lot of fun has been the ushering for the New York Mets uh, during spring training. So you get about 16, 18 games to be an usher. You get to meet all the all the uh, uh, MLB uh, scouts and chat with them and the owner of the Mets, which we have a new owner now this year. So. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed the heck out of that. Just chatting with people that have had season tickets for 25 years down there. How did you get involved with that? I had a friend that uh, works for the uh, Detroit Tigers. And he called me up when he found out I was moving down here. And he said, Steve, you want a job? Well, I don't want a job. <laughs> he said, but uh, would you like to usher? I said, well, yeah, that would be fun. You know, just spring training would be a lot of fun. So he did some research and find out which team was the closest to Vero Beach and it ended up being the Mets. And his boss called the New York Mets in New York. The New York Mets called the guy down here that was hiring. They called me and asked me if I wanted to be an usher. And so they stuck me behind home plate because I was the biggest usher uh, that they had. How often so, are you recognized? You know what? It's interesting. Um Periodic, I'd, I'd say once or twice a game, somebody will come by and say, hi, how you doing? You know, people from 
Well, a lot of you get a lot of people from the Philly and New York area that, that remember back in the day. So, yeah, that, that probably once or twice a game. So basketball, what's your first memory as you're a kid? When you're a kid, was it all basketball all the time or were you playing whatever <laughs> was in season or whatever was going on in the neighborhood? It was it was whatever sport was going on. We played baseball. We played softball. We we had. My dad made an ice ice hockey rink uh, in the backyard uh, in the winter, and I gave that sport up immediately because all I could do was skate on my ankles. So I figured that wasn't going to be very good. We had a basketball a dirt basketball court in the backyard, and that seemed to be uh, where we congregate congregated quite a bit. And uh, you know, when when my mom and dad used to go fishing on Lake Erie every Saturday and Sunday, I I couldn't. I didn't really want to go. I wanted to be in the gym and start, start playing. And, you know, my first memory was playing in the backyard down the dirt and just absolutely loved it and getting my brains beat in by my older brothers and having the desire at some point to say, you know, I'm going to beat those guys. And eventually I, I ended up beating them, but it took me a while to beat uh, my, the, the middle brother in the family, Bob. When do you start to look at, you know, you're growing up now, you're in Toledo, right? Or in the Toledo area? Yes. Yep. When do you start to think basketball could be a path? Well, I, you know, I, I always wanted to play, you know, because our games on TV back in the 60s were, were, were generally Sunday. It was usually a doubleheader somewhere. Uh, you know, the Philly, New York, Boston, New York, L.A. every once in a while. You'd have St. Louis on occasionally in Atlanta. <laughs> but generally speaking, those, those were your games. But I, you know what? I just enjoyed – the competitiveness of playing basketball, the, the, the rhyme or reason of why you score, how you can score, that kind of stuff. I always took that into consideration. What moves do I have? And then playing in the backyard, and people ask me all the time, well, why were you always on the right side in the low post? Well, I tell people all the time, that's the side the garage door was on. All right, so I could throw the ball off the garage door, and the ball would come back to me, so I could make all my moves in the low post on on that side, which actually worked out pretty good because when Julius came to the team, he loved the left side and I was able to go to the right side. So he and I were perfect match for each other. So you're playing hoops in high school. You end up going to the university of Toledo. Uh, Did you want to stay close to home? Was it a matter of Toledo really wanted you? How'd the, the path to college go? Never gave it a whole lot of thought where I wanted to go. I had, I had two and a half scholarship offers. I went, had one from Memphis, a half a ride to Bowling Green, and a full ride to Toledo. My brother Bob was going to Toledo, playing basketball there. When the coach offered me a scholarship, I said, all right, why not? I'll go there and play, play alongside my brother. And uh, things ended up working out real well. We ended up, our freshman year at Toledo, we uh, we had what what we would consider probably the best team to ever go there. A guy by the name of John Brisker, who played in the NBA, the ABA and the NBA as well, was on our team. We had a lot of shooters on the team too. But, you know, we had guys that could shoot 20, 22, 24 feet without any problem. Guys that could drive to the hoop. We had a really good point guard in John Rudley, and uh, he could distribute the basketball. In fact, he led the league a couple of years. Uh, in assists, but he he would distribute the basketball, and I and I say this all the time about John. He was one of the best point guards guards I ever played with, 
because he would hit you in the right spot at the right time. Not the Maurice Cheeks, you know, stop and pop kind of guy, but as far as leading a team, he could do it. He could do it as good as anybody. So your your college numbers were dominant. I actually did a basketball game at Toledo's arena and looked up and saw your number retired in the Raptors. Was the transition to college, was it like it just made sense and we're going to have success? Were there some rough spots early on until you found your pace? Uh, what do you remember about the transitioning from high school to college? Well, I, 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 here's what I think about that. I, I just got a lot better in college. Okay. I, my work ethic became a lot better. Um, my desire to learn was a lot greater. Uh, challenging myself to become the best I could be, uh, all of a sudden took over, um, you know, studying the opponent on what you could do to get somebody to score. Like if I, you know, opening, opening move was one dribble to the baseline shot fake. If the, if the guy went for it, I had him all night, you know, cause now he has no idea what I'm doing. So I could go both ways in the low post because of the garage door. <laughs> moves that I made all the time. So that helped considerably. But that, I mean, all of a sudden it just blossomed in college and the coach coach trusted me with, with the things that I could do and, and uh, gave, tried to give me the ball as much as possible. What are your, what are some of the great memories? Cause you not only had personal success, the team had a lot of success. When you think of your college days, what are, what are some of the great memories? Well, the, the teams that we had an opportunity to play against, the coach made sure that we had great competition. Uh, our opening game is South because we couldn't play as freshmen. Our opening game, our sophomore year, was Notre Dame at our place. And that was a team that was, was uh, supposed to have one of the best recruiting uh, teams in the country that year. We beat them by about 10 or 12 that year. We went up to Marquette. We played Marquette. Uh, they had a 72-game home winning streak. We beat Marquette up there. We During the career, our career, we played at Michigan, Michigan State. We played in Madison Square Garden. We played the University of Detroit with uh, Spencer Haywood, Bob Lanier, St. Bonaventure. So we had an opportunity to play against some great players. And I, that, that, the one thing I remember most is the competition that the coach was able to set us up for. When do you start to realize, start to consider that you could go pro? I mean, it's a different animal than it was, <laughs> than it is now. But when do you start to think like, yeah, maybe I can take this further than most? Well, I always wanted to. I mean, when I was, you know, when you're playing in the backyard in the seventh, eighth grade, you're always somebody. You know, with Philadelphia, it was Hal Greer and, and Wilt. With uh, the Lakers, it was Elgin and Jerry with the, with uh, Boston, it was Havelcheck and, and uh, Russell. You know, in New York, it was, you know, maybe Dave DeBusher, not Dave DeBusher at that time, but somebody, and Willis Reed, you know. So, I mean, you were always playing somebody. So, it kind of stuck with you that, hey, maybe one day, <coughs> excuse me, I, I could do this. And it wasn't really until my junior year when a guy by the name of Butch Comise uh, from Toledo, left-hand player, played in the NBA, played for New York, was traded to Detroit grabbed me and said, we're going to start working out in the summers. And uh, we ended up, I never really worked out. I played. I didn't work out in the mornings, though. <clears throat> so what I ended up doing was we would get to the gym at 8 o'clock in the morning. We'd run two miles. We had a guy by the name of Jeff Seaman 
that was our rabbit. Jeff would run two miles in about uh, 11 and a half minutes. I'd run it in 12 and Butch would come in about 12 and a half. And then we'd run about two miles in sprints, sprints being 30 yards, you know, each, each way. And then we'd run steps and we'd go upstairs and work on our game, all our individual stuff, shoot free throws. And uh, which, which I needed by the way, cause I was about a 65% free throw shooter in, in college ended up being 80 in the NBA. But, um, and then you come back every, every night, which was kind of interesting. You'd play the 12 switch at six. Um, if you win, you stay, if you lose, you have to sit. So first six points, I worked on, on my new move that I wanted to try to perfect. Um, and I, I don't care which one it was, but I, by the time I finished 13 years in the NBA, I had 13 moves in the low post. So I would pick one and say, okay, I want to work on this move tonight for the first six points. And the second six points is winning time. So you got to, you know, you forget that and go to your strengths so you can play again. You know, you play five, six, seven games and, and it's time to go home. So you two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half hours at night. And uh, you come back Monday through Friday and then again on Saturday morning, do the same thing. So after all the college success, you get drafted by the Pistons, uh, I think the fifth round in 69. You were also drafted by the ABA. Was there ever a yeah. consideration of going ABA or did you want to go to the NBA route? Now, I, I wanted to go to the NBA. I mean, that was kind of my thought right from the get-go because I was all those guys growing up. I, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I forget who some of the guys were in the ABA at that time. But, yeah, I, I wasn't Louis Damper and, and all those guys from Kentucky. But, you know, I, it, you just kind of sit there and, and say, okay, I want to play in the NBA. So being drafted by the Pistons, man, I, I got I got a $2,500 signing bonus. I thought I was in, in Fat City, you know. Uh, so I was like, okay, cool. I'll go do that. You know, <laughs> so that was it. So I played there for two and a half years. Um, and then I find, I got cut the first time in Detroit. Uh, and then I got cut five times altogether before I made it back into Philadelphia. But the, the, the last time I got cut, the, actually it was the fourth time I got cut. I started to look at myself and say, okay, what is preventing me from fulfilling the dream that I have of playing in the NBA? And it was pretty simple. It was an 18, 19 foot jump shot on the right side, which Zinkoff used to call it Mixville. So that was all, that was as far out as the suburbs would go, 18, 19 feet of Mixville. So we ended up, I had to develop that. So the time I got cut, <clears throat> that was by Philadelphia. I ended up, that was a year they went nine and seventy-three. So I, I have, I have, I can look back and say I was cut from the worst team ever in professional basketball. So, and then I came back the following year and uh, made the team, became the uh, comeback player of the year, all-star, and, and uh, unofficial six man after that. But I played in the in the Continental Basketball League the one year I was out. And that's where I developed my 18, 19 foot jump shot and all the moves to go with it. And uh, that, that helped considerably. So actually being cut made me look at myself and say, okay, what's preventing me from being successful. A lot of players today don't realize how important that is to take your weaknesses and develop that and even take your strengths even more and, and develop those. Could you notice the difference once you got comfortable with that jump shot, how you're being defended and what you could bring to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being a lefty, 
a lot of people still closed out on your right hand, right? So that allowed me the running hook shot coming to the middle. That allowed me one dribble to the left or one dribble to the right with spin moves and all that kind of stuff. All the things that I worked on for that year, I was able to incorporate in my game once I got back in the NBA. So that year with the CBA, I think you you said Grand Rapids and you guys Grand Rapids, the Packers because like, it got almost forty. Yeah, and you won the title that year, right? Yes, we did. I'm, you know, George Gervin was in that league. So uh, every once in a while, I'll see George, and we'll talk about that Continental Basketball League. And he ended up going to uh, Virginia. We had a guy, another guy on my team, averaged forty-two by the name of Dennis Stewart. I averaged forty. And we had a point guard that averaged 20. So there was 100 for the, for the three. And there wasn't a whole lot of defense being played, but I didn't care at that stage. I, it, that league helped me to develop what I needed to. So you signed with the Sixers coming out of that, um, and they had cut you before. Was that – were there other teams in the mix? No pun intended. Nope. Or was it just nope. the Sixers? Just the Sixers. Gene Shu asked me to come in when I called him. Talked to him. He said, yeah, we'd like to have you come in. We were there in the summer for uh, a week. And the one thing that, that I always did whenever I tried out, first guy on the court, last guy to leave, run some extra sprints to show the coach that you're in good shape. Fast breaks, get out on as many fast breaks as you can. Play some solid defense, rebound, and, and see where the chips fall. But as I said, that, that year out of basketball helped me considerably develop what I needed to. And Gene ended up uh, signing me uh, that year. And, and uh, nine years later, I was, I was still part of the 76ers team. And how much, I mean, you mentioned that year they went nine and 73, but the, I think your first year you guys won 25 games. So there's a significant yep. jump from, from the basement to that. And then it really starts to accelerate towards becoming an elite team. How much fun was it to to be a part of that and to just kind of look around and feel that boat rising and you're a big part of it? Well, Doug Collins and I talk periodically and we talk about those days because the one thing that we, there was Doug Collins, Alan Bristow, and myself were, were some of the rookies on that team that, that year. And we talk about the fact how much fun we had getting our 10th win. We kind of celebrated getting our 10th win because we didn't want to be that team again. Then we got to 25, and then, that okay, that's pretty cool. And then we started developing a few more talent. I think Billy came back the following year, and then we got George, and then we got Doc. Um, so every year, we were still the, the, the main group that helped get that team started from nine and up to the championship year. We were all part of that, that team to help it. Uh, consistently grow and, and get better. And uh, it was, I'm telling you, it was a lot of fun just being on that team. And then when Doc came, it, the team was like rock star. Well, Doc was like a rock star. We were just part of the entourage, really. But it, it, we were that we were that first team in the NBA like they are now, you know, with, with people showing up before the games, watching our layup line, because you had Daryl, you had World, you had Joe Bryant, uh, Doc, uh, you know, everybody that could dunk and throw it off the backboard one side, catch it, throw it down on the other. I mean, it was, it was fun because you would go into a city and half the crowd's rooting for you. We would talk, I want to talk, obviously, a lot about Doc, and, but 
There's a George McGinnis. What was he like to play with? I feel like he is one of the forgotten names in Philadelphia sports lore, and he was something else. George, George was a tremendous basketball player in the ABA. That when he missed that last shot uh, in Portland that night, I think his game went went down considerably. Um, you know, he had that one hand pump shot. You know, he didn't never put two hands on it. Um, you know, he, he could, he could score, but I think once he missed that particular shot, um, I think that was uh, the downfall because we ended up trading George and his game went downhill from there. But George was part of the group that helped get us where we wanted to go. Um, but I'll say, I'll say this about George. George knew how to screw up a drill and practice faster than anybody I've ever seen in my life. All right, so if the game was to – how many times can you get a rebound? All right, George would get a rebound and then go up five or six times, boom, boom, before you could do anything. You know, he had inside position, big shoulders, big body. He'd get, throw a little junk shot up. He wouldn't even try to go in. and just try to hit the backboard with it, get five or six rebounds, and then go sit down. You know, so I was like, dude, come on now. Let's, <laughs> let's get this game going right. <laughs> so when Doc comes – well, first of all, I want to ask, you made the all-star team for the 74-75 season. How yep. special was that considering the road you had to take to, to, to really make your mark in the NBA? I, I think that that just validated everything that I tried to do to, to perfect my game by, by coaches saying, yeah, we, we think you're an all-star. I wasn't voted in, but the coaches voted me in. And that, to me, that says a lot about uh, the guys coming in off uh, on those teams where the coaches will fight, uh, will nominate you to put you on those teams. That, that meant an awful lot to me that now I'm all of a sudden part of the NBA because it, you know, I was, I still was playing with a chip on my shoulder up to that point because I, I wanted to prove. And every year I showed up, I wanted to prove that I could still play in the league, but that's kind of, uh, set very well with me to say, okay, you've, you've arrived now in the NBA and you sit there in that locker room with all those all-stars and you say, wow, this is, this is actually pretty cool. I, I ended up going through the program. I found the program the other day too, and saw that and it was like, Wow, I was in the locker room with all these guys. That's pretty neat. So you guys are getting better in Philadelphia, and then Julius comes over, Julius Irving. I mean, obviously his college careers and his work in the ABA was legendary. Do you remember when you found out he was coming? Um, Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, well, we heard rumors, you know, up to that point. And so I was like, Julius – why do we, you know, what do we need this guy for? You know, and then, and then whose spot did he take? <laughs> so here I go from an all-star to comeback player of the year to all-star to, wait a minute, what's, <laughs> what's up with this? Well, as soon as we got Doc, you know, you take a look around and you knew that Gene Shue was not going to set George and was not going to set Doc. So my position then was, okay, I've got to be the best sixth man that I can possibly be. And then I was the unofficial sixth man of the year that year, uh, voted by the coaches. But um, so, you know, you, you take a look at, at certain situations and you just say, instead of getting upset about it, what can I do to make this better? Did you, I read correctly, you and Doc were roommates for several years? 
seven years we roomed on the road together. Yep. And, you know, so when he's doing this, that big three this the last couple of years, and he asked me to be his assistant coach and stuff like that, you know, we go back uh, to those days and we talk about those days and stuff like that, our room, room, roommates and stuff like that. It, it was a lot of, we were the only two guys rooming together on the road. Everybody else had singles. So, you know, you get to learn a little bit about individuals and your teammates and stuff like, like that. That's kind of cool. How does, so if everybody else has singles, why did you guys have to room up? You guys had done it before and you were comfortable and it just stayed that way? Well, I don't know. We kind of talked about it, you know, and, and uh, uh, if, if you wanted, if you wanted to, you could, you could pay five bucks or 10 bucks, whatever it was to, to get a single. And doc and I were just sitting there chatting one day. I said, Hey, guys, do we want to be roommates? Sure. All right. So we're roommates. So we put in for roommates and, uh, uh, you know, it, it worked out perfectly. Our likes were very similar. Our, our get up time was about the same. Our bedtime was about the same. Our, our pregame meals were about the same. Our, our, you know, candy bars before we went to bed were about the same, you know, and, and so it was a lot of fun and we, we enjoyed each other's company. Do you guys talk a lot of hoops or was it not hoops talk when you guys were, were rooming together? We, we probably, over the course of seven years, we, we, we were soup to nuts. You know, we talked hoops. We, we ended up talking families because our, our wives were, uh, were very close as well. And that's, that's actually how Doc and I got to be friends is the, the wives became very good friends. My wife, Mary Allison, and his wife, Turk, they actually they had seats next to each other. So they got to know each other. We got to, and then Doc and I, uh, so it worked out perfectly. And it's time to take a break on one on one. We will have more with former 76er Steve Mix right after this. Hey, everybody, it's Cherry Gregg here. You may know me around town as KYW News Radio's community affairs reporter, but every week I produce and host Flashpoint, a podcast where we highlight the hot topics in Philadelphia, local newsmakers, and change makers burning things up in our region. From gerrymandering to gender equality and policing in schools, we'll walk you through the flames on Flashpoint. It's available wherever you downloaded this podcast that you're listening to now. So subscribe. Thanks so much. And we're back on one-on-one. Our guest this week, former 76er Steve Mix. What was it like (laughs) watching Doc those first couple years, just as a player? I mean, did you ever find yourself turning into a fan watching some of these moves? (laughs) <laughs> no you know it's interesting you know everybody talks about that move behind the bucket right when he had against the lakers he took that ball behind the bucket brought it up on the other side well we used to see that stuff in, in practice so to me it was like there's no big deal i mean you know when you see him take a, a, a quarter off the top of the backboard you say okay we, we've seen quite a bit now from him and you see that move and you say Oh, that's a heck of a move, but you you just kind of expect Doc to do that stuff. So we talk about you guys get better and better. The 76-77 season, you guys end up going to the finals. You talked a little bit about the final shot of the, uh, against Portland. Um, what is – how are you feeling heading into that series? Well, I, we, were feeling, we were feeling good. We were feeling pretty pretty good. I, at the end of the series, and you look back at that series, we had a heck of a lot more talent than those guys did. They were a better team than we were. And they, and they really showed it when they were down 
0-2. Then they won the first two games in Portland, came back to our place and won their third, got their third win. It was, uh, you could you could pretty much see that they were a really good team. We were, we were very good um, individual talent, you know, and, and we came down to that last shot. And when Gene rolled that shot up and said, George, I want you to take it. I was like, whoa, Doug's having a really good game. Doc is here. And we're going to give the guy that shoots one hand jumpers a little run and leaner. Oh, boy. So, you know, it's like, okay, everybody go to the offensive boards. And, you know, it just didn't work out that way. I, would, I probably would have given the ball to Doug because he, he was he was rolling pretty good. You mentioned you so. guys won the first two and then Portland won the next four. Was there a moment when you could almost feel the momentum of the series switch to them? No, I mean, not really. I mean, we we did have a few guys hurt on that, on that team. I mean, I, I had a sprained ankle. I was shooting it up every single game. Doug had bad feet. Uh, Andrew, I, I think, uh, was it Andrew or, or world had some problems as well. Um, so, you know, we knew we had to play pretty good basketball, uh, to beat them, but it was just a matter of, uh, they were pretty healthy. I think. What are those years in, you guys are good every year and you're knocking on the door yeah. and you're getting to the finals and it's Portland, but then it's the Lakers. How? Much fun are those years, but then how much frustration is mixed in because you're getting right there and you can't quite punch through? Well, look, you know, when you look at it, I've got friends that played in the NBA. Tom Van Arsdale, for instance, uh, played with us in Philadelphia and a good friend of mine now, but he played 10 years, 12 years in the league and never made the playoffs. We were, we were pretty fortunate to get to the finals three times when I was there. And then I was on the Lakers in 83, uh, which we lost that game too, by the way. So it makes it interesting that you can just see guys that are even more frustrated than we are. So I, I, you know, after we lost to Portland, we played, I think we played 110 games, including exhibition that year. That's a lot of games. You go outside you sit with their fans, congratulate them, and say, hopefully we'll see you guys next year. You know, and so it's once it's over, it's over. There's no sense in, in dwelling on that so much. You know, you're mad and stuff like that, but it's over. So let, let's roll on and take a week off, two weeks off, and let's start getting ready and in great shape for the following year. So that's what that's basically what I did. So when you look at your Sixers career, so many great moments, so much success what if I ask you to talk about the favorite memories what is at the top of the list whether it's games people moments you know whatever but what would you put at the top of the list well yeah that's interesting because I you know yeah I don't really have the whole time I was there was was an absolute blast I you know from from the arena I love the arena because the depth perception was what I thought was perfect the crowd was always behind us. You know, they're, they're, I don't remember the crowd booing me or our team while we were there. Uh, very appreciative of the fans. The fact that we could, as a team, when we would arrive in a, in a different city, 
we would always have about seven or eight guys that would go out to dinner and just kind of talk for a while, for an hour, hour and a half, two hours uh, to become a little better acquainted with, with each other. If you wanted to go, fine. If you didn't want to go, you had something else to do, that's cool. But there was always room for, for everybody. If anybody wanted to go to dinner with us, and uh, those those are favorite memories, sitting there chatting with with Doc uh, at the uh, when we practiced at St. Joe's, uh, we would go across the street to the uh, uh, cheesesteak place and get cheesesteak and fries. Uh, they were pretty greasy too, by the way. I don't know if the place is still there or not, but they were pretty good after practice. Um, going to we we would go to uh, get pregame meals all the time down to market. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of things that we did that are favorite memories, but to pick one out, I would say, man, probably not. You know, as I said, the, 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 it, it was just a ton of fun being in Philly. You know, everybody rags on Philadelphia about, well, you know, the, the crowd's not very good. I got news for them. I, our crowd in, in Philadelphia was, uh, what for us was fantastic. Do you have a favorite Julius Irving story? You, cause you had, spend so much time develop such a close. Is there one that stands out? That's a great, a great anecdote. <laughs> well, we would always, when, when we room together, we'd get our meal money and we would each throw $5 in the kitty. So, okay. And when we would get enough money, we would decide we were going to do something. One night going to LA, going to the, to the Lakers game, we rented a limo for Doc and I that was sitting behind the team bus. And Billy came out of the hotel and looked, what the heck are you guys doing? Oh, we'll meet you over there, Doc. We rented this limo. We're going, taking the limo. It's only about a five-minute ride. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it, was, it, it was hilarious. And then another night in Phoenix, we ended up uh, with Tom Van Arsdale. We rented a suite, an upstairs, downstairs suite. And we decided after a couple beers that we were going to have a wrestling match. And we moved all the furniture to the walls. And (laughs) when I tell you, we were throwing guys all over the place. We were throwing guys all over the place. You know, the couch, nothing broke. But we, we were, it was, it was fun. It was like WWE that night in Phoenix. It was absolutely hilarious. Woke up the next morning a little sore, but what, what a lot of fun that was. So you mentioned the, for 82, 83, when the Sixers do win the title, you actually had signed late with the Lakers. I think it was very late in the regular season and you spent the playoffs with them. Yeah. What's. The emotion in that NBA Finals. Obviously, you're a competitor and you want to ring, but you're watching guys that have been knocking on the door for the better part of a decade, and they're finally busting through. What is what's going through your mind over over that series? Well, Kareem told me I, they were going to get me a ring, so I was like, okay, cool. Um, so, you know, and, and I really I played a little bit. I didn't play a whole lot, um, but I had a great seat. I had a tremendous seat to, to watch the playoffs. Uh, generally, we, you know, we, our first game was, uh, uh, in our last, uh, first round was in Portland. Kareem hit it like an 18, 19 foot sky hook to win the game. 
uh, you know, then we, we win another series. We come to El- come to Philadelphia. Uh, Pat Riley let me stay at my house in Cherry Hill as long as I made all the meetings and everything else. And, and uh, you know, one of the reporters asked me, what are you going to do if Doc comes down the middle and you're the only defensive player back? And I said, well, Doc's shooting free throws. He's not going to take off and dunk on me. He's shooting free throws. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. And uh, they all kind of laughed and stuff like that. But, you know, that, it makes it interesting because, I mean, these are all guys you know. So, you you know, you try to help Pat out the best you can with all the plays that uh, the Sixers are running. But they, they changed a lot of plays around once uh, Moses got there and stuff like that. They, they put Moses into effect more than they did any of the other guys. So the centers anyway. When you decide to, to call it a career, were you comfortable with putting your playing days behind you? Was that your last season, 82-83? Yeah, that was my last season. I was um, – the year before, my last year in Philadelphia, I was able to sneak one, one, year, one more year out. I, 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 this was clear as day, and I remember it so vividly today. An opponent – took a jump shot from the left corner. I had my man boxed out three or four feet, you know, along the baseline. The ball hit the, hit the rim and it's all long shots. The rebounds will be long. I looked up and I was about ready to jump. It was over my head. And I said, ah, I'll get the next one. And that's when I realized that I don't have the desire to play at that high level anymore. It was, it was that clear that, okay, I'm done. But I was able to sneak one more year in with Milwaukee and then the Lakers. And uh, so I was able to play one more year at a pretty high level. Uh, but that, that was a telling tale right there. That was the end of the end for for uh, for Steve Mixon, the little post, and uh, with the Sixers, was it tough to watch the Sixers celebrate that year, or was it, uh, you know, while you're disappointed, there's got to be some happiness for those for for those guys? Absolutely, I, I was thrilled to death for for Mo and 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 Doc and everybody in in that locker room, being part of them for nine years and helping them to get to that position, um, you know, and and. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, and we talk about that. Doc and I talk about that on occasion. So, um, it, but it is it, disappointing. I could have had a ring, but on the other hand, I made the NBA finals four times. Uh, didn't win one. And I ended up being a trivia question on jeopardy. Who won, who, who lost more NBA championships? Who was in more championship games without ever winning a championship, uh, in his career. And that was me. I did up not know that. to that point. Yeah. Uh, up to that point. It probably has changed, but 1983, that was, I was the answer to a trivia question. Pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> now my introduction to you, I remember you vaguely as a player when I was little, but you doing Sixers games on TV was so much fun. How'd that come about? Was that something you were pursuing or was it, Hey, we need a guy. Are you interested? We'll give it a try. And 
away. I, I ended up, I wrote Harold Cass a letter telling Harold that I see that, and all, a lot of the teams were, were starting to get community relations directors. And I wrote Harold a letter explaining to him how good I would be as a community relations director and actually apologizing to him for some of the things that he and I discussed. And by the time he got back to me and he said, yes, we'll hire you and we have some games for you to do as well. Hubie Brown was doing road games or home games. I forget which one it was, but he said, you can do the other other 41 games. So I did community relations, going out in the schools and talking to the kids and then doing uh, 41 games. So I did that for five years. I had over 500 appearances for the 76ers in schools and everything else. And uh, we ended up uh, uh, eventually getting all the games in once Hubie once decided to go to the uh, national network. And I did a couple of years with uh, Neil Funk and then the rest of the time with uh, Mark Zumoff. Um, first of all, how fulfilling was the community relations stuff? Cause I don't think that's something that a lot of people know, but going out in the schools, working with kids and stuff like that, how fulfilling was that? That was a lot of fun. That was a lot because I, I, I told them my life story on, you know, how, how things don't always go your way. Uh, how things can, can go sideways on you in a hurry. But if you believe in yourself and you have a, have enough desire and gumption to, 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 to do whatever you want to do, then you have to find a way to do it. And for me, it was developing that 18 foot jump shot for them. It might be working a little harder in science or math or whatever it might be. Not everybody's going to be a professional athlete, but you can't, you can be a teacher. You can be whatever you want to be, you know, a plumber, electrician and, and go from there, but don't let, don't let things get in your way and, and trip you up figure out a way to, to get through those walls that, that stop you from becoming successful. Was how was doing games at first? Was that, was that something completely foreign to you or did it feel comfortable right away? Well, when I, when I got to Philadelphia, it felt comfortable. Cause I, when I, when I first started doing games, I was doing games for the university of Toledo. I did about five games for them one year and I did a couple of games for the Pistons and not having a broadcast background at all you know you'd show up for a game and you'd do the game well (laughs) i was terrible i was absolutely terrible till i started figuring out once again what you have to do your homework that you have to put into it and talking to the coaches and talking to the players before the games and getting all the information you need uh to broadcast or at least get through the first quarter because once you get through the first quarter, then the game kind of takes over. You don't have to talk about guys coming off the bench. So now it, it becomes just the game. So now, now you have to put the game in, in the words that, that the fans could understand. And my, my whole objective, almost every game, was to tell the fans something they didn't know about the game. And if I got out of there and I felt comfortable with that, then I did my job. I remember I listened to you junior high, high school. Uh, you were one of the voices of my adolescence watching Sixers games and stuff like that. Uh, 
how much did you enjoy being a part night and night out of, of how people saw the game? I enjoyed that. I really did. I, I you know, people come up and, and even, even when I periodically in Philadelphia, when I'm in Philadelphia now, they come up and, and, uh, Hey, Mixville, how you doing? You know, that kind of stuff. And that, that means they were watching the games and, uh, or I, you know, unless, unless great grandpa brought you to the game when I was playing, generally you're going to remember me from when I was a broadcaster and that, then that's kind of cool. So that means once again, that I, I did, I must've done a pretty good job. I think. I was incredibly disappointed when I learned you weren't going to be doing them anymore. How tough was that for you? Was it something you were able to, all right, well, it's a business when, or how did it, you know, how did it resonate with you? That was, that was disappointing. I, you know, I, um, although the, the game was, it was interesting because the game game has started to change. The prep work was getting easier the plays that everybody would run were about the same. And when I say prep work, I mean, you don't have to study what the opponent was doing because back then it was pick and roll on the right side, pick and roll in the middle, pick and roll to the left. You know, and I don't know how much it's changed today. It's changed a little bit. You're getting more cuts and stuff like that. But every, you know, once one team in the NBA wins a championship running an offense, then the owners get together with their coaches and say, hey, we need to be Golden State because they shoot 53s a game. Well, if you don't have three-pointers, shooters on your team, you can't shoot 53s a game. So you as a coach need to come up with something totally different. But nobody did. And then once again, you go with pick and roll to the right, pick and roll to the left, and pick and roll to the left. And that's why Don Nelson – uh, was able to run that 3-2 zone. The first time I've ever seen a 3-2 zone uh, when he was, I think he was with Golden State. Uh, and it was it was amazing. Now you see all sorts of teams running zones. And, and uh, before, I don't think coaches could figure out how to run a zone, but a 3-2, 2-3 zone uh, works perfectly in the NBA. So the nickname, the mayor, where did that come from? Um, I own the right side of the court. That was, that was my suburb. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, Zink gave me that Dave Zinkoff gave me that, uh, Bill Campbell gave me that. And, uh, I think Bill gave it to me first. Um, so that, and once again, that, that right side was, was basically, I, I didn't want anybody coming over there. You know, that was my side. Maurice, bring the ball down the right side, give me the basketball, let me score. Doc was on the left side. When Doc had the ball on the left side, I was 18 feet out. Uh, and he would drive, he would kick it to me, so I, I could do whatever I, I wanted to do then. I could shoot the jump shot or drive it and kick it. If I was in the low post, I could score either coming to the middle or going to baseline or, or kick the ball out, um, generally to the weak side. Uh, but, I mean, that's – that was that was my bread and butter. That right side of the court was my bread and butter, and I, I I thought I was pretty good at it. So when you look back at your time in basketball, you know how proud are you of everything you accomplished? I mean, it's it's an impressive resume uh, in many different facets. I you know I I don't really I I think <laughs> I I will tell you this. During the big three, 
the last couple of years when we got together with Doc and George Gervin and Clyde Drexler and that, I, I think our stories made us a lot better than we were. Now, I'm sitting there with three Hall of Famers and, and George and, and uh, uh, Doc and, you know, and, and Clyde. So I'm, I'm kind of like the lone guy that has one all-star. But you feel comfortable talking to those guys about the game back in the day, the game today, and how it's changed so much. Uh, I think most of us liked the game back in the day rather than today because there was much more movement and we didn't fire it up as quickly as guys do today, you know, the three-pointers and stuff. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm very happy and satisfied with what I was able to accomplish uh, with what I got. My, my motto when I played was run fast, jump high, shoot straight. One out of three ain't bad, and I could shoot straight. <laughs> so that was my motto. I was able to accomplish it. Steve Mix, thanks so much for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. All right, man, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great time. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank former 76er Steve Mix for being our guest this week. If you like the show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at one-on-one-pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at MattLeon1060. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next week for another conversation with someone you should know more about.